serving the western interior of Alaska for more than four decades. I'm your host, Ralph Sara. Biura! Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. KBOO Portland. On the next episode of Voices for the Animals, we'll look into the case of a goat, a girl, and the rise of more compassionate and humane alternatives to 4-H agricultural programs. We'll be speaking with Danielle Hanush, Executive Director of LEAP, Leaders for Ethics, Animals, and the Planet. It's a program that offers students the farm animal care experience and opportunities of 4-H without the selling of those animals for slaughter, which can traumatize many kids. These kids were, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old and just realizing, like someone flipped a switch, that, oh my gosh, these animals are no different than my dogs and cats at home. And now I'm knee-deep in this program and I don't think that there's another option and I have to betray my friend who I have cared for. We've got your goat. On the next Voices for the Animals, Friday, November 24th at 10 a.m., right here on 90.7 KBU FM. KBU. The more compassion we have towards animals, the more compassion we're going to have towards other people. If you can value them all, you, you really value yourself as well. So even if you don't care about animals, the, the things we do that hurt animals end up hurting ourselves. It's almost kind of a dominion type issue where we feel we need to control everything. Dominion means stewardship to take care of. What would a cow think about satisfying our habit? The challenge lies with looking at suffering from the perspective of the person or individual suffering. Good morning and welcome to this month's edition of Voices for the Animals. I'm your host, Michelle Coppola, and I am very glad you're here. Back in April of this year, a story made national news about a nine-year-old girl in Northern California's Shasta County and her goat, which she named Cedar. Cedar was purchased by the girl's mom so she could participate in the 4-H program through the Shasta County District Fair. Well, you may have heard of 4-H. If you're not familiar, it's a program that, among its other offerings, teaches kids how to care for farm animals. They raise them from juveniles to adults over a period of months. Then the animals are shown and sold for slaughter, usually at the county fair. Well, as it happens sometimes, after three months of feeding and caring for the animal, girl and goat bonded. So when it came time for Cedar to be sold his fourth-grade caretaker just couldn't go through with it. She was absolutely despondent about giving up her goat to be killed. Well, the girl's mom took the goat and her daughter home from the fair that night, then immediately wrote a letter to the Shasta County Fair Board asking if they would please make an exception and let her daughter keep the animal. Since Cedar had already been sold at auction, she also offered to refund the purchaser's money and any other expenses due to the sale. 
She even had arranged for Cedar to go live at a farm sanctuary. The purchaser was amenable to that deal. So it seems like bending the rules a little and giving Cedar a reprieve would be an easy thing for fair officials to do, right? Well, that's not what went down. Unfortunately, officials in Shasta County decided to take a hard line with Cedar's nine-year-old owner and make an example of her. They not only threatened the girl's mom with a felony, they also sent Shasta County Sheriff's deputies 200 miles away to seize the goat, then had him slaughtered almost immediately after they got him and served the meat at a barbecue. The actions of the Shasta County Fair Board drew widespread condemnation, but as I read about this case, I became aware of livestock care programs for kids that do not involve the caretakers selling their young animal friends to be killed. One of those programs is LEAP, which stands for Leaders for Ethics, Animals, and the Planet. Here to talk with us about the LEAP program is the executive director of the LEAP program, Danielle Hanish. Tell us a little bit about the origins of the LEAP program, how, when, and why it was started. So it actually started way back in 2017 as just a education program at
and they do the curriculum portion. And that ranges in topics. So yes, there is farmed animal care. Um, there's also a whole slew of things like climate. We talk about climate anxiety, eco-anxiety, and how students of the younger generation who often feel helpless and don't really know where to start can start making their own lifestyle choices and also advocating for a more sustainable system as a whole. Um, we also talk about veganic gardening. We're teaching them how to do permaculture type projects um, so that the land is healthier. We also have workshops on rewilding the land. So things like bringing back native plants and pollinators to um, open spaces that are in communities, even their own backyards or uh, there's some abandoned golf courses. There's some open space that they are learning how to rewild to bring back, um, like I said, the native pollinators and native species. And then we also talk about things like ocean conservation. Uh, for example, the kids watch the documentary Seaspiracy, and we have lessons that pertain to that, uh, not only the lack of sustainable uh, ways to harvest seafood, but then we also teach them about the alternatives of plant-based eating. Um, and that leans right into the cooking portion. And so we do also a lot of hands-on cooking demonstrations and um, interactive activities where the kids get to, for example, prepare a vegan holiday meal. So what would that look like if they took their traditional foods and made them plant-based? And those opportunities continue to grow. We're partnering with PAWS, which is here in Northern California, and that's the Performing Animal Welfare Society, um, along with some other of the, the popular vegan organizations to offer different workshops so we can talk about wild animals as well. Do you require that kids be vegetarians or vegans to participate? And what if they are, but their families or guardians are not? How does that work? Yeah, great question. Um, we do not require veganism of the students or vegetarianism. In fact, we encourage omnivores to join the program because that's the whole point, right, is showing the bulk of society who are omnivorous, you know, that there is a different way, uh, a better way to do things for our bodies, the animals, and the planet. And so we do end up having, you know, usually a few vegetarian or vegan kids that join the program, and it is fun for them to meet other like-minded students. Um, but I'd say the majority that we have had in our pilot years so far have been omnivorous. Um, it's actually really fun to have them bring their parents, bring their families, because it's really a learning opportunity for everyone. Um, we let them make their own choices. Like, of course, we, you know, we talk about all of these things, but a lot of the curriculum is critical thinking, group discussions around ethics, and we have a final project on the very last day where the students are responsible for designing a vegan lunch and cooking it for their families. Also designing a sanctuary tour of whichever sanctuary they're participating in. And they lead the tour. So that's part of the leadership programming is they learn how to advocate through education and through helping people connect not only to the animals themselves, but also to the kind of food that they could replace them with. And we believe that that's really important because, of course, you know, most people will have that inkling of, oh, maybe I should go vegetarian, you know, when they connect with mm -hmm. pig. But then, of course, they go out to lunch or they go to the grocery store and they don't know the first thing about how to create meals that are nutritious and, and delicious and, um, you know, satisfy that craving, I guess, that they have. And so we show the kids 
how to cook vegan and how to replace things that they normally have in their diet. And we also focus on, you know, there's a lot of cultural, religious, and family ties to food. Right. Because of that, food's very emotional. And so that's one thing we really like to focus on at our Thanksgiving workshop, which is sponsored by Little Saint Restaurant. And that's in uh, Healdsburg here in California. They sponsor that workshop. They're a plant-based restaurant. And we talk about like, okay, what do you normally eat for Thanksgiving? You know, what is on your family's menu? And that may look very different depending on the culture of each student. And then we talk about, okay, how could we replace, you know, the milk and butter and mashed potatoes? You know, how do we replace the beef or the pork? And we just give them those tools. And what's been really fun to see is they go home and cook them for their parents. And so that's been a nice way to even just introduce more animal-friendly and plant-based foods into homes across the country. And we hope that we can we can uh, help families to make that transition as well. So I want to backtrack just a little bit. You had mentioned earlier that when you went down to visit Adori and get Sebastian, that you talked to a lot of the kids and they were distressed about uh, how the 4-H, the typical traditional 4-H program works in selling animals for slaughter and very conflicted. And I'm aware that um, there was a study actually done back in 2010 at the University of Colorado where they studied the actual moral and emotional conflict that kids in the 4-H livestock programs tend to have. I was wondering if if you could speak on that a little bit more about the conflicts that a lot of kids and even adults, myself included, have with regard to how, you know, we get our food. Absolutely. I think that for most kids in America and adults as well, we're just so far removed from how our food is grown and produced. And that includes animal agriculture. Most people nowadays don't grow up on farms and they don't really even think about how their food comes to be at the, at the supermarket. Um, a great example is, you know, talking to adults about the ways that cows have to be impregnated constantly and have their babies taken away to make milk. I don't think even most adults think about the fact that cows, just like any mammals, have to be pregnant in order to produce milk. We just grow up, you know, believing the cows make milk. So I think that there is that distressing realization and for a lot of those kids, it comes early on, you know, in the program. And I will say the FSA and 4-H have a lot of great leadership components that we are emulating and leave. You know, they're not all terrible programs, but it's the component of speciesism that we see that really traumatizes the kids and, of course, the animals as well. And I think as the kids work with the animals, you know, this is evident in the video you mentioned you watched where we interviewed students who were in the FFA program, specifically raising pigs. They really have never been around farmed animals for the most part. They're used to being around dogs and cats, which of course, you know, they would answer, of course, dogs and cats have feelings. You know, of course, they feel sad, happy, lonely, scared, excited, just like, you know, humans do, um, even though they express it in different ways. And so I think that was one of the biggest takeaways for us interviewing students was these kids were, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old and just realizing like someone flipped a switch that, oh my gosh, these animals are no different than my dogs and cats at home. They have feelings, they have personalities. And now I'm knee deep in this program and I don't think that there's another option and I have to betray my friend who I have cared for. You know, they take excellent care of the animals in 4-H and FFA right. right up until, of course, they tell them to slaughter. And I think for a lot of kids, there's feelings of guilt. Um, and I also think the unfortunate part of that is a lot of the parents are distressed by it as well. Of course, there are the farming families that tell their kids to toughen up and it's a part of life and it's the, 
you right. know, circle of life, which, of course, it's not if you're... <laughs> well, they encourage the cognitive dissonance that I guess we all participate in to some degree when it comes to eating animal products. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. And the kids, you know, as children, we're not born with that. Like, we... <laughs> There's the common analogy that if you, you know, you put a baby in a playpen with, with a rabbit and a, an apple, they're going to play with the rabbit and eat the apple. It, it's just the same thing. As these kids are growing older, we really have this opportunity to nurture that compassion within them and to nurture that connection with animals and that understanding that, you know, a pig is the same as a dog in regards to its sentience and its ability to feel and that they're no less deserving of life, especially when we don't need to eat them to survive. And that's another thing that I think the kids are learning in LEAP is to bust that myth that you have to have animal products to be healthy, which, of course, our current culture um, promotes, you know, to all ages. And so that's what we aim to do is just give them a different way to see the world and let them make their own choices about ethics based on the information that's out there. When it comes to programs like 4-H and FFA, you know, it's very attractive to kids because it gives them the opportunity to be responsible for and interact with an animal, but they also are attracted to these programs because they do offer opportunities for students to get money for college and make connections that will help them in the future. Is that something that LEAP has been able to establish as of yet? Yeah, actually, that's something that we have been working on really hard during our pilot program. And we are just now um, looking for funding for more student scholarships. We have a really generous matching donor who is an anonymous uh, philanthropist, and he is a, he's agreed to match $150,000 um, towards the LEAP program, which is just phenomenal because we do want to offer students that financial incentive. Um, and we also want to offer them that competitive piece that they get in 4-H and SSA, which, you know, of course, in 4-H and SSA, they learn public speaking. They learn how to... Right about their animal to the people at the fair and how to um, present them in a front of a group of people. And so we are offering um, a variety of different projects that they can complete at the end of each year. LEAP goes through the school year. So it's generally September through May or September through June, depending on the um, district. And the last few months of the program, the students have an opportunity to complete a leadership project and it does involve all those different components of creativity and competition and public speaking. Um, because of course, along with the animal care and the um, climate education, we also teach leadership skills throughout the year because LEAP stands for leaders in ethics, animals on the planet. Right. And then the kids compete for scholarships. So they present the projects that they've done and they compete for scholarships that we then award them at the end of the year. So they get a certificate, of course, for completing the program. And then they also, right now, they're earning scholarships of either 500 or $1,000 to put towards college. And we hope to you know, offer that as an incentive, not only for those kids that love the competition piece of 4-H and FFA, but also to show that there's people out there that are willing to donate to these types of programs, not only to, you know, there's a lot of wealthy people that want to buy the, the kids' animals from the fair at way more than market price to encourage the leadership skills that they learn. And we want to show that there's also people out there in America who are willing to pay for the compassionate side of education and advocacy as well.
One of the reasons I became aware of your program is because I understand that you just recently expanded it up to uh, include Wildwood Farm Sanctuary in Oregon. Where is LEAP available now and for what ages? And uh, are you aware of other programs around the country that are similar? And if someone doesn't have such a program in their area, you know, how can they do an alternative like this on their own? I know that's a lot of questions in one thing there, but I felt like they were all related. So, No, they're all great, and I will try to answer them all, and feel free to remind me if I missed sure. a piece of that question. So right now, we have expanded to 25 sanctuaries across the country. Our pilot started with three and then six, so now this is the first year of the actual program. We are an official 501c3, and yes, Wildwood is definitely a part. They're one of those 25 sanctuaries this year. So this year we have sanctuaries in 13 states across the country. Um, yes, Oregon, definitely, and Washington. Uh, on the East Coast, we have Vermont, New York, Massachusetts, New Jersey. We have Texas uh, in the Central United States. And- Wait a minute. You've got a LEAP program in Texas? Bravo. <laughs> sure do. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the cattlemen must love that. Yes, I know. <laughs> It's so exciting, actually. Ohio as well, which, of course, you know, is in the Midwest and also Pennsylvania on the East Coast. And I think I covered them all. But what's really exciting is not only are we in, we have LEAP in those 13 states, 25 different sanctuaries, but we have a waiting list going of other sanctuaries across the country. It's been it's been incredible, actually, to see how many people are excited about this. And the same thing keeps being said, which is we have wanted an alternative for 4-H and FFA for years. We've tried to do, you know, things on a small scale, but we're all so busy. You know, we, we are all sanctuaries, and I can attest from running Blackberry Creek that, you know, that it's a lot of work to run a sanctuary for, for many different reasons, and one of them is that, you know, they're underfunded. They're all nonprofits. Sure. So one thing that we have done is to, you know, before we went from the pilot to this full launch, we wanted to make sure that we could make LEAP 100% free for every student who wanted to participate and for every sanctuary. So there's not a cost to joining LEAP. You know, the the sanctuaries don't have to pay the scholarships. That's something that that LEAP does and, and we're working on raising money for that. And so how it works is all the sanctuaries need to do is actually implement the curriculum that we send them. Sometimes they have an employee who's actually in charge of education. Sometimes it's a very dedicated volunteer who does that for them. And so I would say, you know, the best way to support, if you don't have one in your area, to support that is helping LEAP to get the word out to obtain funding, because the more funding we can get, the more sanctuaries we can add. We, we offer stipends for sanctuaries who can't afford it to prepare vegan food for the kids for lunch, because mm. every workshop session, we like to let them try different kinds of food. Um, they get the t-shirts, you know, the LEAP t-shirts for free. And then, of course, all of the curriculum and, and all of the hands-on workshop modules, we're creating those here at LEAP and giving them for free to the sanctuaries. And so we hope, you know, next year we already have at least 20 more sanctuaries on the waiting list. We hope to be able to have multiple LEAP centers, whether they're at sanctuaries or, or urban settings like community gardens. Over the course of the next few years, we'd love to get them in every state. So if someone is interested in finding out if there's a LEAP program near them, should they just get in touch with their local uh, farm animal sanctuary and see if they're involved? They can do that. Uh, Probably the easiest way is to go to our website because we actually have a list of all the sanctuaries and the state and county that they're in that are participating right now. So that would be leap4animals.org. 
And if you go to our website, there is a button that says for students, or you can click on the apply now and it shows every sanctuary across the country that's currently participating. And if there's a sanctuary out there who wants to get on the waiting list and join for next year, um, there is also a link that's called for partner sanctuaries and they can sign up. There's a list there of the requirements to be a partner sanctuary. Of course, there are, you know, some ethical requirements. We, of course, want to make sure they're actual sanctuaries and not farms mm-hmm. that are raising animals for any kind of um, commercial profit or exploitation. And we do vet each sanctuary pretty thoroughly. So people can, for next year, sign up to be a partner and they'll go through the vetting process and then we will, you know, add a LEAP chapter at their sanctuary or urban garden. And Danielle, I wanted to ask one last question, and maybe this is something that you can't answer from a legal standpoint, but perhaps maybe you can give a little advice. Let's say a parent has a child in a 4-H or FFA program who, like Cedar, the goat's caretaker, decides that, hey, they just can't go through with selling their animal friend for slaughter at the end of the program. So to avoid the conflict that happened down in Shasta County with Cedar, what advice would you give them? So from what I understand and and from the FFA and 4-H surrender cases that we've worked with, because we have a few other animals from those situations besides Sebastian, it really depends on a couple of things. One is, does the student and or the parents physically own the animal? Like if the parents have paid for all the veterinary care and all the feed it's sometimes easier to negotiate a release versus if the animal is owned, like in in, uh, Adori's case, by the actual school. Like Mm -hmm. the school funded their care, and then when Adori, you know, was supposed to auction Sebastian at the fair, she reimburses the school for that. So I think that's the first step is to figure out, you know, who's actually legally, you know, the owner. We don't like to say animals are ever owned, but we know that that's what they consider them. Sure. Programs. I sometimes use guardian when I'm speaking of my pets. So, yes, yes, exactly. So, I think the first thing is to see, you know, who is the appropriate person that that would be needing to be contacted. So, if it's the school, um, sometimes they are more than willing. Like with the Dory's case, they said, you know what, like we, I think it was $700 or somewhere around there, like we need to be reimbursed that amount of money, um, but we don't really care what happens to him. So, go ahead and if you can pay us that, like he's yours. And then, of course, Adori had to find a home for him, and so that was when she would reach out to sanctuaries. In other cases, which is similar to what happened to Cedar the goat that I know that you talked about, um, especially once animals are actually on the fair property, they become legally owned by the fair. Uh Um, And that, in those cases, I believe, you know, the schools, I'm not sure how ownership transfers if if the animal comes from a school, but that case they would need to talk to the fair board which are typically much more resistant to this idea because it undermines the whole program and the whole mindset and to be quote-unquote fair to the fair board um, cedar had already been auctioned off and he was on fair property and mom decided to unilaterally take her daughter and the goat off the property before she actually spoke to the fair board which probably caused them to dig in their heels a little bit more Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it's much better to take care of this before the animal even gets on fair property, because then, of course, it becomes much more legally 
difficult and there's other people involved in Cedar's case, you know, like you said, he'd already been auctioned. So then the fair has a legal responsibility to the person who purchased him. And of course, that person in that case, you know, relinquished their right to him. Yeah, they were amenable to just getting their money back and letting him go to a sanctuary. And at that point, it became a really, I think personally, this is my own personal opinion, it became a really bad judgment call on the part of the fair board not to just bend the rules a little and avoid the public relations nightmare and ensuing court case. Yes, exactly. Um, I have been following that case, and, and I know that some fairs and some FFA 4-H programs, you know, they have a contract that the kids sign as well. Right. Yeah, I think that would be my advice is absolutely try to work with sanctuaries in the area because, of course, if you do get the animal released, you're going to need a safe place for him or her to live the rest of their lives. And then also, you know, as early as possible to decide you want to pull that animal from the program, um, I think the more hope there would be for having an amenable outcome to that. That was Danielle Hanash, Executive Director of LEAP, Leaders for Ethics, Animals, and the Planet. They're a 4-H alternative for students who want the experiences and education that 4-H offers in the agriculture sphere without the killing. As always, you can read more about this program in the case of Cedar, the 4-H goat, by following the links at the Voices for the Animals episode page at kboo.fm slash Voices for the Animals. You'll also find a podcast of this episode there as well, and we invite you to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And that'll do it for this episode of Voices for the Animals. I'm Michelle Coppola, and until next month, be kind to animals, to others, and most of all, to yourself. Good morning, everybody. It's Friday morning, and thus time for Film at 11, the weekly panel show reviewing recent films on both the small and the large screen. This is DK Home, and this week I'll give a quick survey of some recent additions to cinema streaming. Then turn the reins over to Jeff and Matthew for more offerings. Ava is another movie about a paid assassin whose bosses turn on her, in this case, Jessica Chastain. This is a cliched plot, which is re 